Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second day of the VoiceDAO Sustainable Finance Summit. My name is Yamur, and I'm representing VoiceDAO at NYU. Today, we're hosting Erika Karp, CEO and founder of Cornerstone Capital Group. To best introduce Erika, I want to start by sharing a beautiful quote from her about sustainable investing, which is, you make decisions with your head, with your heart, and with your gut. It's not just about the numbers. Thank you, Erika, for being a leader who is passionate about creating change in the finance industry to support a livable world. And thank you for being with us here today. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. And I'm very excited to talk to you. And I want to say up front um, that I love conversations more so than I love, you know, making speeches. So as I'm speaking, please, you know, think about what you really want to talk about, because we can talk about whatever you want. Now, um, if I may, I'll, I'll lay the groundwork for a couple minutes. Um, so I uh, just recently uh, sold my company, merged my company with an organization called Pathstone. And Pathstone is a $30 billion platform that advises uh, families and individuals and foundations and endowments. Cornerstone was built, uh, founded about eight years ago. It was built for purpose, specifically as an impact investment advisor. And the really cool thing about this merger is that now we can get impact at scale, all right? And that's what we're going for, to address the issue that we're talking about today, right? Can stakeholder capitalism lead to real sustainability? Um, uh, by way of background, just so you know, uh, Cornerstone, seven years, now part of Pathstone. Prior to Cornerstone, I ran global investment research for UBS. And prior to that, I was at Credit Suisse. So I've been on Wall Street 30 years. And doing sustainable and impact investing, I am still like a kid in a candy store. This is critical and endlessly fascinating because we get to talk about every sector, every country, every company, and figure out how they can become more sustainable. And by the way, um, I actually don't think sustainable is really the right word. Sustainable means you know, doing what you're doing, staying as you are, which I get, not damaging uh, the planet and the people and the animals. We actually need to go beyond sustainability. We need to become regenerative, right? And that's the goal. So not just, for instance, carbon neutral, carbon negative. We need to fix a lot of stuff that we've broken. And by the way, capitalism, no question, is broken. We have messed it up you know, enormously over the past you know, century. And that's because we didn't recognize the externalities. You know, Adam Smith was you know, the, the invisible hand. I mean, this is good stuff. The invisible hand goes and kind of slaps us in the face because he didn't talk about externalities and because people like Milton Friedman didn't talk about long-termism. You have to be thinking long-term. So that's background. I want to give you some definitions, all right? So we're on the same page, level setting, all right? ESG, environmental, social, and governance, is not, um, it's not an asset class. It's not a style. It's not a strategy. ESG analysis is a discipline, and it has to be done for good investment research and for good investing practices. Sustainable investing is, um, is simply the systematic analysis and integration of ESG factors into the investment process. 
impact investing means intentionality and measurability and corporate sustainability. My definition, it is the relentless pursuit of material progress around a long-term inclusive and regenerative global economy. Okay, so that's where we are in the level setting. The question, can stakeholder capitalism make for a more sustainable economy? Absolutely. Can it make for um, a more regenerative economy? Maybe. Is it enough? No. But one thing I'll tell you is that we have to do impact investing across the capital markets, meaning not just venture capital with amazing ideas, not just private equity with, again, more scalable amazing ideas. We've got to leverage the public markets too, because we need to move trillions of dollars towards impact. And so whether we're talking about the theme of um, uh, biodiversity and, and, and dealing with what is the sixth great extinction, whether we're talking about investing for racial equity or LGBTQ rights and equity, whether we're talking about carbon emissions and carbon negative, whatever we're talking about, circular economy, technology, quantum, uh, computing and what that means across sectors, whatever we're talking about, doing ESG analysis matters. And if we really want scale, we need the public companies, right, that are moving billions and trillions. We need them to engage. And we do have lots of organizations out there. One of my favorite ones is, is the WBA, the World Benchmarking Alliance, right, to really look at what best practice is. Now, I want to wrap up um, by discussing uh, these big trends all right, that are driving capitalism towards a more sustainable and regenerative place. All right? First, you have an unprecedented alignment of all the pieces of the capital markets, the asset managers, the, uh, the investment banks, the asset owners, uh, the exchanges, the academics, uh, the accountants, the lawyers, um, you have this uh, unbelievable um, uh, kind of simultaneous movement, uh, dynamic shifting in the capital markets, and you have new standards for disclosure, so we get better data from all the corporations. This is critical, excuse me. Then, aside from this unprecedented alignment, we have the media, social media, it makes everything more transparent almost immediately. And that's good because transparency is critical if we're going to have change. And then, of course, you have this massive intergenerational transfer of wealth, frankly, to people like you that understand how critical these issues are. And you are learning, we are learning how to express the fact that you don't have to give up competitive financial returns to have impact. So all the information we need is there to start to drive towards a more stakeholder orientation. Because the reality is, if you're a company and you're not serving your communities well, and you're not serving um, your shareholders well, and you're not serving your employees well, you are not going to maximize profitability. All right. So we need to get a more nuanced, sophisticated view of how uh, corporate sustainability can work. So anyway, you have 
the media, the transparency, you have shifts in the, in the dynamics of the capital markets, you have better data, abilities to uh, measure uh, the impact better, okay? And you have, um, um, again, that transparency hopefully leads to collaboration and that kind of collaboration leads to better solutions. Um, so again, there's so much going on right now. It is frankly so exciting because you know, it, it would be really easy to be kind of bummed out and depressed because, you know, we're going to have more plastic um, in the oceans than fish in the next few decades. So again, uh, it would be really easy to be bummed out. Or you can be excited and proactive and start um, uh, understanding how thematic investment research, like what we do, um, is so important and leads to answers. So my favorite example right now, we did a piece of uh, research on quantum computing and what that is and what it means across sectors and how it aligns with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so, and how ultimately uh, quantum computing improves, as an example, logistics in the transportation sector, which brings carbon emissions down dramatically, all right? So that's a little complex, but then there's stuff that's really simple. Methane, a huge source of carbon emissions, horrifying, right? And so what we've learned is, you know, all the methane comes from cows burping, right? If we feed them some forms of seaweed instead of what they're eating now, completely eliminates the methane in their stomachs, right? So all good, sometimes complicated, sometimes simple. But what we need is the force of will because we have the capital and we have the answers. Um, optimism and force of will, and, um, and we can make capitalism much more constructive. It still is the best system that the world has ever known for driving prosperity. Um, and yes, stakeholder capitalism doesn't just think about financial capital, but it's about human capital and natural capital. And all of those three coming together is good. Um, so I'm not saying we can fix everything now, um, but we can certainly accelerate it. All right, so on that note, I'll take a pause and tell me what you guys want to talk about. Great, thank you, Erica. Thank you for setting up the discussion, the very rigorous discussion that we hope to have, because that's kind of the purpose of this summit is we don't just want to learn about what is happening. We want to learn about how we can change things to support the livable planet that we all want to be a part of. And so in your introduction, you said that stakeholder capitalism can create a sustainable world, um, but it may not be able to create a regenerative economy, which is what's going to be key to creating a livable world. And so what factors are necessary to creating a regenerative economy? And what do you mean specifically by this term, if you can use examples? Um, and also like where are the biggest opportunities for creating a regenerative economy um, that like, like where to start basically. So thank you. Um, so yes, um, we need to get beyond sustainability, okay, regenerative. And that goes to that issue, for example, of you know, negative carbon, not just carbon neutral. But in any case, um, with regard to regenerative, um, what we have to do is think about the idea of a circular economy, right? So um, 
I'll use and and by the way, that that regenerative idea and a circular economy fits into every category, every sector in some way, right? So um, when we're talking about um, the capture of carbon emissions and then somehow turning it into um, an energy source, um, kind of again in a circular way, there's technologies these days that can do that. A more mundane example is when you think about um, carpeting, all right, in your office, and the biggest carpeting manufacturers are able to know how to um, kind of recycle the carpeting that um, they've put down there. And the carpeting that they've put down there actually becomes their inventory, really. It's lying there on the floor. They know what to do with it when it's, um, when it's useful life for a particular office is done. And then they, again, they put down the new carpeting and that's their inventory, right? So it really is, it's, it's about recycling, reusing, and of course, reducing. Um, that circular economy is a place where we can think of um, a world where there's no such thing as waste, right? And speaking of waste, I mean, let's be realistic. When we think about water and drinking water, and there's this little term uh, that I've heard called, you know, toilet to tap, right? We do need to capture everything and clean everything and reuse everything, right? And, um, and so again, I used three examples and I'm hoping, you know, that makes sense in terms of a circular economy. Um, I think it's Nike that makes a, one of their sneakers, you can like pull one, I heard this, I don't know if it's true, but you can pull one hidden like thread and the whole sneaker comes apart and it's completely recyclable, right? And so from everything from apparel to carpeting, to water, to energy, we have to figure out how to recycle and reuse. And the truth is it's there, the technologies are there, we can do this. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Um, so we can start uh, really sector by sector and think about what the technologies, do the research and think about um, what can be done uh, to start a, a better world. Now, in terms of, um, you know, waste energy is a great example. We still haven't captured that completely in terms of how to do it. Food waste, for instance, into energy. So what we've got now in the venture capital world and the PE world, lots of solutions being put out there, but the issue is to scale, really to scale those solutions. And so the reason I think it's not just capitalism that's gonna fix things is that I think that you also have to have um, the public sector, right? You have to have uh, the kind of legislation and regulation that supports um, you know, the work that's being done. In terms of funding, we've seen lots of philanthropic entities fund solutions. Reality is the capital in the whole world's philanthropic sector is a drop in the bucket compared to what's in the corporate sector and the public sector. Um, so we need to see an alignment of policy um, and the private markets. And, you know, that's... I'm not going to, you know, spend my time talking about that because, you know, we can't control it. Um, but I can help control what goes on in uh, in the investment world. And so, um, 
yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking, why I can be less optimistic, because I am worried that we're not aligning properly. Policy is, is going to be a huge driver. Yeah, definitely. I agree. You're, in your presentation, too, you talked about like leveraging public markets. We definitely need um, policies and uh, those kind of actions coming in touch. But like at the end of the day, uh, companies like Patstone, it is like these companies that are changing the world and creating a more sustainable future because of the lack of responsibility and initiatives by government. So I want to ask, um, how does Patstone contribute to a more regenerative future? And how is Patstone making tangible impacts? What kind of a model uh, do you use there? So we are an investment advisor and family wealth advisor. And so by virtue of our doing you know, serious ESG analysis, integrating that perspective into every one of the um, asset managers uh, that we support, um, integrating that perspective in the family advice uh, that we offer and the institutional advice that we offer, um, working to educate, um, you know, multi-generation, multi-generational families in the future of finance, the future of capitalism, you know, that's a big um, uh, contribution that we make. And then publishing the research that we do whether it's on circular economy or quantum computing or regenerative agriculture, right? Are putting that research out into the public domain. That's not just for our clients. We put that out in the public domain to help everybody. Um, so that's the kind of work that we do. And of course, internally as a company, we try to you know, do what we um, espouse as best practice. We engage our own employees, our colleagues towards um, you know, doing, whether it's recycling or thinking about public health or, or their own philanthropy or, um, you know, civic mindedness, right? So as an investment advisor, um, you know, we are doing what we uh, tell other people to do. Um, so, you know, and also we support certain organizations that uh, we think are really making progress. I mentioned the World Benchmarking Alliance, I was one of the founders of, of uh, founding board members of the SASB. We support organizations like the Threshold Foundation or Nexus or Confluence or Tonic. Um, so we are really out there supporting uh, initiatives that are intended to um, frankly drive more sustainable capital markets. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, just like you said, like impact investing or adopting uh, sustainable ESG practices require intentionality. And what I hear from you is like Pat Stone has embodied that intentionality. And definitely Adam Smith's invisible hand did not think about externalities, but somebody has to think of them with the intention in mind. Um, I'll leave, leave it to Abby to ask the second follow-up question. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for diving into Pathstone because it is nice to hear about a different model that does have that ESG analysis in every decision. I guess one thing that in planning this summit that we really wanted to get to is like as a leader in the finance industry, speaking to Gen Z, like, do you think that shifting to a green economy to support a livable planet is possible? And if, and like, Related to that, is staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius realistic? Why or why not? And like, how do we, 
how do we accelerate this pace to make this the goal rather than, um, you know, the sustainability and staying in the same place. So just to reiterate, like, is shifting to a green economy possible, staying under 1.5 degrees? What do you think of that? And also, like, what needs to happen to accelerate this process? Um, so shifting to a green economy is absolutely possible. Absolutely. And um, but the issue is in what time frame, right? And so the problem is that, you know, in the words of Martin Luther King, we have to have this fierce urgency of now, right? Because kind of moving to this slowly is not going to allow us to hit the targets that we want, right? So it's possible, but the magnitude and the timing of the transformation is not fast enough. Um, not fast enough for me, and I think not fast enough for the planet. And by the way, this is gonna sound slightly obnoxious, but the planet does not give a damn about human beings. The planet is going to be fine after we're gone. It'll be different, but it doesn't care. Um, we should be caring about this gorgeous planet uh, that we inhabit. So in any case, can we do it? Yes. Can we do it in time? Maybe not. Is there a lot of damage already built in? Yeah. Right? The ice caps and everything else, what cities are going to be underwater um, in the coming you know, uh, decades? I mean, this is, we've built in a lot of damage. But again, we can do a lot. Now, regarding the one and a half degrees, um, I have skepticism on precise numbers, right? Because the science is so difficult. And when we think about the complexity of weather, um, honestly, we don't have quantum computing yet, but we're gonna need it to be able to truly predict the weather and the temperature. That said, I think it's critical that we have a target that we can aspire to and get to. Um, again, I worry about reaching that specific number. Um, and I don't even think that specific number is enough. Um, but again, I don't want to sound like I'm a bummer. Um, I do think we can have make enormous progress, notwithstanding the damage that's already been done. Definitely. And that's that transparency is, you know, essential to um, is essential to making this change and accelerating it. And I actually want I want to share a question from someone in the audience because they asked it. So it says, can you identify a few key changes you would like to see in the financial sector, which would move us closer to a regenerative livable world? And I really like this question, Maya, because it, it, um, it takes us, while it's good to identify like that the finance industry isn't doing what we hope to get us to this livable world, it's like, we do need to start solving those problems. So the question is, few key changes you would like to see in financial sector, which would move us closer to a regenerative livable world. Mm -hmm. um, so earlier I talked about transparency, big one. I talked about collaboration, big one. So those are two big changes we need. But I would say the biggest kind of overarching change is that we need to see investors um, thinking long-term. We need to see companies thinking long-term, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the tenure of CEOs of major companies 
is becoming shorter and shorter. So, but, but let's go beneath the idea of how do we get long-termism into the market? What I would suggest is that one of the things we need, aside from education, so we need a massive consciousness raising exercise. But aside from education, I think we need to think about the incentive structures that are sitting under each of the pieces of capital markets, right? So whether it's investment um, banks or whether it's asset managers and asset owners and consultants um, who advise, we need to see those incentives aligned for long-term. I'll give you a, um, a small example, okay? Let's say we have a very prominent research analyst on the sell side at an investment bank that's making recommendations and actually moving stocks, moving investors to invest or divest of stocks, right? That research analyst is compensated on an annual basis just based on their performance each year, which might, you know, in, in turn be based upon, you know, how much uh, revenues they drive from their clients or how much uh, stock trading they do um, based on their coverage. But there's nothing that gets this analyst thinking, I got to pick stocks for the long term. I got to make sure that the stocks that I pick have performance over time, not just that I had a good year, right? And, and now they paid on the one year. And by the way, the same thing with, with institutional brokers, paid on the one year. There's no callback if the next year all their stocks tank or all their clients you know, lose money because of what they're saying. So my, my point is we just have to think a lot about incentive structure. And again, I use the, the capital markets, but I'm talking about across industries um, and across functions. We need to structure incentives for long-term investing. So um, again, the incentive structures, collaboration, transparency, those are a few of the things that we need to see. And again, most importantly, transparency, visibility, um, uh, consistency. Um, and I would tell you that these things are starting to change across the markets. Um, and, and so I am optimistic. You know, I think we're going to be okay, not fast enough for me, though. Thank you for your answer. And I want to add, like, transparency is so important, but I also feel like accountability is going to be really important, too. I was seeing that that's becoming a very important, like, ESG trend, because we see this world full of people and companies giving us promises. But, you know, we want to see how are we going to achieve these promises? What kind of roadmaps uh, are we going to establish? And actually, there's a related question to this from the audience uh, by Olivia Kaplan. Thank you for your question. Who do you think the primary enforcers of more conscious stakeholder capitalism need to be? Mm. Can corporations can truly be trusted to enforce things for themselves as many US companies are pushing for? Or do you believe stricter regulation from government on reporting and compliance is needed? Um, it's a big question, it's a great question. Um, so can companies, um, can the financial institutions uh, be relied upon to monitor and keep themselves accountable? You know, the reality is no, 
right? When we think about government regulation, you are talking about um, kind of guardrails, right? You're talking about um, the idea of an independent party um, observing what should be done. And again, I keep mentioning the WBA, the World Benchmarking Alliance, because I don't think that many people know them. But if you think about benchmarks, who is best in class? Who does appear to be holding themselves accountable, right? That's what we can get incredible information on um, with organizations like that. Now, with regard to the government, the regulators, I mean, it's kind of scary because they might be regulating industries that we wish they knew more about themselves, right? Sometimes it kind of happens they're learning as they're regulating, just like with ESG disclosures, right? The SEC is just learning themselves about ESG disclosure, you know, from companies. And it's just now that they're starting to say that they're going to look into um, investment advisors, right? And asset managers who say they're doing ESG implementation uh, integration. Are they? Right. I mean, that's what I do all day long. Like I, we analyze whether or not they're doing it. But the SEC is going to look at it, but they are just learning themselves about how to do it. What is ESG integration? Is this greenwashing on the side of a company or an asset manager? Or is it real? All right. So, you know, again, we think about this all the time. Do we need that government scrutiny? I think we do, because you know, it's, um, there's going to be plenty of companies out there that, one, are completely um, kind of ignorant about the trends that are going on in ESG analysis and sustainability. There are going to be companies that know what they are, but are not doing anything about it. There's going to be companies that um, know what they are and are maybe purposefully obfuscating and giving us bad information or information that is uh, stuff they want us to know about. By the way, wonderful research from, um, well, from loads of places, but I'll use George Sarah from, from Harvard, right? A few years back, he put out a piece, I think it's called First Evidence um, of Sustainability, something like that. But basically he shows that companies that disclose ESG data that is not actually material their operations. It doesn't really make a difference to the financial and economic outcomes. Companies that disclose stuff that as investors we don't really care about uh, underperform the markets. So I, you know, I like that. Greenwashing is not good for shareholders. That's what this report is basically saying. Um, so one, we need those guardrails, um, the infrastructure of you know, the public um, uh, authorities looking at. And by the way, that's what regulation ought to be in my view. Intelligent regulation should be about creating infrastructure and guiding good practices, right? And if you think about infrastructure, I think, um, Winston Churchill said um, during the war, he was in front of the House of Parliament um, and he said, you know, we build our buildings and thereafter they build us. Think about that, right? We put the infrastructure in place and if it's crappy, if it's bad regulation, it's gonna be abused. 
So um, let me go to the issue of reporting, uh, corporate ESG reporting, critical issue. So we can have data that is um, good quality, that can be used for uh, comparisons, that can be used for projections. We don't yet have that, but we're getting there. Thanks to you know, the SASB, all the DBA, the GRI, we're getting there. So um, yeah, so that, that's as it relates to regulation and, um, and data, uh, that's kind of where I stand. By the way, given the quality of data uh, is not what it ought to be, you're seeing these corporate disclosures of ESG factors putting into, you know, taken by, you know, uh, ratings companies, rankings, and then indices, and then ETFs, all built on one another, on bad data. So, you know, you've got these systematic errors inside the, um, the creation of passive products in sustainable investing. I would argue that active management is critical to sustainable investing. Definitely. And that's something that, you know, is a hard thing to tackle with regulations because especially, I mean, every country has different values. Um, in the U.S., you know, we really like to have control over our money and that definitely makes sense in some ways. But, you know, there's arguments for public good and what, how should money be spent and how much should regulation there should be. And I guess um, we kind of talked about the corporate perspective and how businesses are dealing with regulation or, or lack thereof. And so it seems like at Pathstone, the people who are really making the change possible are the investors who come in and who wants, you know, they want to make a difference because clearly they're using, at least to some extent, because they're using Pathstone, which has these ESG values and ESG analytics. So with your clients, um, I guess, like, what are investors' priorities when they're investing in a sustainable fund or when they're investing sustainably? And something we've been talking about is oftentimes these priorities are mostly financial base, financially based, because if they're not getting a return, then um, they're not going to invest it. So how or can you shift these incentives from completely financially based to impact-based or what are the strategies you use to really get people to care about making impacts? So this is an interesting question. We, our job is not to make people care about anything in particular. Our job is to understand um, what a client's values are and what their um, uh, aspirations are, right? And our job is to help educate when we have particular expertise, right? Now, what I'll tell you is that um, those clients that are really very knowledgeable about sustainability and about their own values already, right? Typically, what we see is the most passion around um, uh, climate. Um, we see a, a lot of passion around you know, social justice investing uh, for um, racial equity, for LGBTQ rights, um, so investing to improve uh, opportunity. Um, we are seeing a lot of interest now in food systems, sustainable and regenerative food systems. We're beginning to see um, uh, a lot of interest in 
uh, biodiversity and animal rights. And what we do as a firm is we make strategies available um, uh, so clients can further those. The one thing I have to say is that clients themselves are, you know, asset owners. They will decide if they are willing to take uh, concessionary investment returns, i.e., you know, put the money to work. I don't care if I get market returns. More of our clients are genuinely interested in both. They want competitive financial returns. They want, you know, whether it's to mirror the S&P or, you know, do what the markets do. They want competitive financial returns and the kind of impact that they were um, aspiring to. So I got to tell you, it is all over the map as to what people want. Now, it is incumbent upon us, and it's, it's kind of my job, like, to make the, the world better understand that, one, you do not have to give up financial returns if you don't want to, all right? Two, we believe that to not do, to not conduct ESG analysis is actually to break a fiduciary duty, not the other way around. Right, it's critically important part of investment research. Critical to know that, right? So it's a fiduciary obligation. Um, uh, and then, and then, most of all, again, people need to understand we can constantly, constantly learn and evolve and deploy all the um, insight um, and every new development to all of our investments. Again, I keep going back to this quantum computing report that we did because it's such an example of the fact that everyone needs to care about quantum computing to some degree. It's the future of computing. It is disruptive and it's going to affect every industry. So you better know as an investor how it touches your industry, but the key is can we think about it in the context of sectors? Can we think about it in the context of themes? So is quantum computing going to have a huge positive impact on carbon emissions? Yes, we need investors to, to make that connection. And so that's what we try to help everyone do. Um, and again, here's the thing, impact investing and sustainable investing and responsible investing and double bottom line and triple bottom line and values-based investing, it's all just investing. And if you conduct ESG analysis, you can do any kind of investing you want. It's better research. So uh, again, we do not push our values on our clients. We serve uh, their interests and their aspirations. Thank you for um, that explanation. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of uh, growing interest in thematic investing as well, because I think uh, clients' values align. Like if someone cares about racial equity investing, uh, they probably communicate those values to you. So I just want to ask, so you talked about racial equity investing, LGBTQ investing. How does thematic investing create tangible change? Would love to hear an example of this tangible change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, again, I'll stick with this example of quantum, and then we, you know, move from quantum down to the travel um, uh, and transportation industry, and then we know that, you know, let's say Delta 
is better than American Airlines at deploying quantum, optimizing their routes, and not circling around airports waiting for you know a slot while they you know put out more emissions than they did crossing the Atlantic, right? So the company that is better at managing its logistics, thanks to the nature of the uh, investments they're making in a future technology, that's investing. That's that's how you figure out which companies have the edge over the long run. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that we think about. Forgive me, um, your full question, repeat the full question. Um, Right. Yes, of course. Uh, okay. I just asked for like an example of racial equity investing or LGBTQ investing, because I've been hearing a lot about like thematic investing. Um, I was curious about like how do these investings create tangible impacts and okay. what are some examples of impacts? Yeah. So yeah. Um, again, so that's big markets that I talked about. Let's talk about racial equity, investing for progress, right? What you have to do is first understand the genesis of the problem. I mean, face it, you know, America and, you know, our, our history of, of white supremacy created a really, you know, a huge problem in terms of a lack of equity. So when we think about um, the idea of building wealth through education, through launching companies, through buying houses, right? All this stuff was not available to the African-American community for decades, right? And so what we need to do is figure out ways to reverse really those terrible inequities. And we can do that. So investing in, um, uh, you know, whether it's um, communities of color uh, through um, bank policies and lending, you know, we can do that. And that has tremendous impact that is, you know, implementable and manageable. The issue again is how, um, how much, how do we scale it, right? And we can talk about um, LGBTQ rights. We can talk about, let's go broader. Let's talk about gender equity. So when you think about gender equity, um, actually I'm gonna do something a little more nuanced. Think about the idea of sexual and gender-based violence, right? So we know that, you know, um, human trafficking is more prevalent in the um, restaurant and transportation, transportation industries and hotel industries. We know that. So if we're going to invest in a hotel company, like um, hotel whatever, XYZ, uh, versus investing in, um, let's talk about uh, MGM as an example. People don't know that that's the largest restaurant company, one of the largest restaurant companies in the world, that's what they do. So a company like MGM is very clear in articulating their strategies about how they limit, how they try to limit sexual and gender-based violence, human trafficking, um, in the treatment of employees, benefits, they can talk about that very clearly, where, you know, leisure company XYZ just doesn't even think about it, right? So those are examples how you can see what companies are, frankly, what I call doing the right thing. Um, so whether it's gender, whether it's climate, 
uh, whether it's um, you know animal rights and biodiversity, we can we can invest for all of this. Um, and again, it takes we talk about transparency. You know, is that helpful? No, definitely. That was really good. And I really appreciate that, you know, you acknowledge the um, importance of understanding the genesis of this problem. You know, roots of capitalism is at the end of the day built on free slavery. And that is how this is, this belt is created, you know, and we have to acknowledge this fact and drive change towards that. Um, Abby, also we have like last 15 minutes left right now. Uh, keep sending your questions and we'll be directing them. Erika will, will already been asking questions because they look so exciting and they were so connected. We just wanted to throw them on. Definitely. So one, one thing that I've noticed is you've really touched upon how investor or consumer demands are shifting from completely financially based to impact based. So we talked about environmental sustainability and social justice. And so do you think this reflects how intergenerational wealth is shifting from Gen X and Gen Y to Gen Z? And like, how is the finance industry preparing for this shift in inter intergenerational wealth? And like, what specific concerns have you heard being in, in the industry from the leaders in the industry? Like, what, are, what, are the, what is the finance industry leaders concerned about, about this intergenerational shift in wealth? Okay, so first of all, I have to say how delighted I am that this is happening, all right? So, and the reason I'm delighted is because, frankly, you guys are being educated in a way that, you know, the generations, including me and before that, just they had no concept, you know, of how to think about these issues. And so, you know, sustainable and impact investing, it, it, you know, again, I talk about it, it's, it's in your mind, but it really is in your guts. You have to care. You have to give a damn, right? And you have to really understand that um, it doesn't have to be inconsistent with capitalism and with profits, right? And you have to really believe that in your heart because you, you can tell when, you know, you can tell when people are kind of just listening or faking, you can. Now, if we think about um, we think about where decisions are made. So, well, actually, let me go back for a second because I just had a flashback. I was uh, this is when I was at UBS, and I, I was in a room full. I was doing a presentation on sustainable investing, and I'm, I'm in a room full of about fifty, um, you know, young people, fifty people under twenty five or around that age. And each of them came from families um, of a billion dollars and above in terms of wealth, right? So I'm in front of this room, and as I'm, you know, going to do this presentation outside, somebody said to me, "Oh my God! Like, what do these people know? It's like they don't know anything, and they don't have control of the money." So, like, you know, and I, I didn't say anything like "shut up," but I should have. Anyway, I go into the room. And I started talking about economics and the markets and capitalism. And I have to tell you, this group, they were so smart and so committed and so thoughtful. I mean, it was awesome, right? And they raised their hand and they were asking awesome questions, hard questions. But that moment, I knew that you know, these people may not today 
you know, have access or authority over the wealth of their families, but they have influence, huge influence. And I'm not saying that they should shame their mothers and fathers and grandparents about how wealth has been deployed and the fact that they probably made their wealth from oil and tobacco and real estate. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, the next gen should shame their parents, um, but, I, but I do think that there can be that education and consciousness raising, but we have to see that deep knowledge, serious understanding of the capital markets and finance, and that's coming. So that's why I'm actually delighted um, to see the influence that is coming from that group. Now, there's another issue separately. Now I'm talking about you know, foundations and endowments and the boards of trustees of these organizations. What I will tell you is that if you look at the composition of those boards, they are primarily, and this is, you know, we can do the actual research, but they are primarily made up of, you know, 60-year-old white men who come from Wall Street, all right? So that's the perspective um, that you see on these boards and these trustees that are responsible uh, for moving capital. That is unfortunate. Um, I'm hoping that that's changing, both on a gender issue and a racial equity issue and experiential issue. Uh, so I think that's changing, but it's problematic. And it is that same um, challenge that corporate boards of directors are facing. And the majority of corporate board directors are not ready for a world that's demanding um, corporate sustainability. That's a problem. Um, but in any case, again, I'm optimistic. Um, in terms of intergenerational wealth, we actually do a lot of educating um, because that, that serves our clients. And, and, uh, and most of our clients would really like the next gen to be really financially literate. They're not gonna force it. Some of them are simply gonna go and do other things. Some of them are gonna stay in operating companies um, of their families, that's great. Um, but this is a very good change. I mean, I have to tell you, like my own children, I have three teenage daughters. Uh, they blow me away in terms of what they know about um, and what they feel strongly about. Uh, so again, I, I think it's great, this generational change. Thank you for trusting in us and in the Gen Z. Thank you. Um, definitely your emphasis on like positive change with empathy instead of shaming was really powerful because with collaboration and empathy, we can allow consciousness raising and the sustainable transformation. That was really empowering, I think, as we move towards the end of our conversation. But I'm going to take a question from the audience and then Abby will continue with the other ones. So Will, David, will Davison ask, Given that the eight richest people in the world have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world, how can we build a world where these people's assets are used for positive impact? This is a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like really a tough one because I am American, I am a capitalist, and I believe that people who build great wealth, um, good for them, right? Um, that said, 
I believe that if any um, if any of that wealth accumulation is used to hurt others, whether it's inadvertently or consciously, then their wealth should be basically destroyed, you know, from outside or from inside. You know, it's some, somebody asked me um, recently, is capitalism, is money good or evil? And it's such an interesting question because, you know, the answer, frankly, is it depends, you know, depends on how it's used. But that wasn't enough of an answer, as I thought, as I'm talking to this person. So I said, look, um, I'm going to take um, uh, from, um, uh, from Roosevelt, FDR, uh, something that's put, it it's, uh, relates to here in New York, uh, his monument. It's called the, the Four Freedoms uh, Monument here in New York City. And the Four Freedoms, um, and this, I believe he used this in his second inaugural address. Uh, he talks about the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. Um, so those four freedoms, to me, are a good proxy for what is good and what is bad. If you trample on any of those four freedoms, that's bad. Um, on the other hand, if you enhance those freedoms, that's good. All right, so it was the only way I could kind of frame for myself is money good and bad. So if we go to those, you know, few, those handful of even trillionaires now, I think we have a couple of those, right? Um, if they're using their assets, um, to hurt the freedoms. That's bad, and the assets should be, frankly, taken. Um, that's hard for me to say, being capitalist. But again, if you're doing damage to others, um, then I have a problem with it. So that's kind of the best way I can answer it. Um, what I would like to see, by the way, on a more day-to-day -day basis, and I do not understand why America has not talked about this issue, I would really like to see uh, consumption taxes. That's okay. There should be, in my view, really high taxes on really high emitting cars, as an example. And, and so consumption tax, if you make it carefully, so it's not regressive, you know, hurting people in their day-to-day -day lives, then I think that that's an answer. I don't even know why this is not discussed in our country. Um, so anyway, that, those are my thoughts on this very tricky issue. Definitely. And I really like how you recognize, you know, we are in a capitalistic system. We are Americans and it's unrealistic to pretend we're not and to um, just come up with an answer that sounds good. So like throughout this whole conversation, I've appreciated your transparency and recognizing the context that we're in. Um, I just wanted to end on one final question because we have four minutes left and it's from the audience and so the question is with the current prevalence of greenwashing how can we build public faith in finance to help create a regenerative economy yeah 
So this is, we've covered kind of a lot of pieces of this, um, but what's most critical in my view is you have to know the questions to ask, right? Whether it's a company or whether it's an asset manager. And again, in terms of the basic stuff, you know, what are your covered emissions and do you have science-based, um, uh, you know, metrics and all that stuff. So that's the, the basic stuff. And we're starting, I mentioned, to get standards for the disclosure and discussion of these issues, right? Um, but I like the more nuanced stuff, right? Because I don't think you can isolate any E or S or G factor, right? So it, within ESG, the G, governance, is first among equals. Because if you are um, not a, a, you know, if you are not a well-governed company, you know, you probably, you may not be looking at EMS. If you are looking at the E and the S, then you can be a well-governed company. This is a tautological thing. Not well-governed if you're not looking at the E and the S, right? And so um, when we think about greenwashing, I think you have to get more nuanced in your questions, which is why I, you know, the research, the thematic research that we do, we use it to ask questions. We use it to make ourselves knowledgeable and I mentioned, so like if a, if a you know, a, a, an airline company or a hotel company is not thinking about, you know, modern day um, human trafficking and sexual and gender-based violence, well, then they're not looking at the risks associated with their business. That's bad governance, right? That was a more nuanced question than my asking, like how many instances of, um, you know, Whatever, it's a more nuanced question uh, than just looking for one statistic, right? And so that's one of the things we have to do. We have to understand which issues and themes affect which sectors, and again, which SDGs. So we're, you know, we're a long way off from doing that. I would suggest that the vast, vast majority of the tens of thousands of financial advisors uh, in the US have no idea um, what sustainability is and how you question a company or an asset manager. So we have a long way to go, you know? Thank you for your answer. And also for all those who sent questions, but we didn't have the time to answer. Thank you for sending them out. And we really appreciate the participation from audience. We really enjoyed your beautiful questions. Um, we can slowly and yeah, Abdi, you go. I was just going to say thank you as well. And we really appreciated your transparency and your use of problem solving skills and really considering every factor. And it was a rigorous discussion and that's what we hope to accomplish. Well, it's my pleasure. Really my pleasure. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time and wisdom. Have a great day, Erica. Have a well, nice day, you. everyone. And well, keep in touch for the, yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for all the other summit events. Everyone, we, we're going till Sunday, so we hope to see, see you this week. Bye, everyone.